We're going to be in Job chapter 19. Actually, going to begin uh, with a couple of items in uh, Job 18, if you want to turn there first. While you're turning there, I just want to mention that in something in recent history that has happened was uh, what's called the Me Too movement, where uh, women were encouraged to uh, share times where they were uh, abused uh, by men in power. And they did that, and that became a kind of a movement and a thing that was going on. And then, then there became a church to movement uh, where ladies were encouraged to uh, share when they had been abused by people in powerful positions within church. And they did that. And in the world, I can understand this happening in the church, not so much. But when they came out with that, uh, instead of receiving help and encouragement for the injustice that they had faced, they were instead attacked. And you have to understand, some of these ladies were minors at the time when things happened to them. And uh, instead of receiving mercy... Uh, people began to defend their abusers and to attack them and to look for sin in their lives. And I share that as uh, an example of when those who should help actually hurt. And we see this in the book of Job, because Job is suffering because Satan thought he was a gold digger. Thought that he was serving God for the blessings he received. And so he went through an intense time of testing where he lost everything. Now, Job is oblivious to this uh, divine meeting that has occurred. And he's lost everything. And then he has three friends come. And as we looked at last time, uh, Eliphaz uh, told him that, uh, well, God troubles the troublemakers and blesses the behaviors. And he says, if you're experiencing trouble, then you're a troublemaker. And so he's insinuating uh, an accusation against Job that Job has done something wrong and they are seeking for wrong uh, in his life. And this goes on, and, and because we're not going to hit every chapter in the book of Job, what I've chosen to do this week is to look at Job 19, which is Job's, Job's response to Bildad, who was the second uh, miserable comforter that had come to Job's uh, aid, if you will. And I, I want us to just look uh, real quickly at Bildad. Bildad is a jerk. I, I don't know how else to put it. Well, I do know some other ways I could put it, but not in the church setting. So it, if you want, um, look at Job chapter 8. Just some things... For, for Eliphaz, Eliphaz's source of wisdom was this encounter that he had had in a vision with a divine being. And Bildad's source of wisdom is found in Job chapter 8, verses 8 through 10. His source of wisdom of how, how things have worked in the past is how things work now. Okay? And he says in Job 8, verses 8 through 10, he says, For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. 
For we are but of yesterday and know nothing, for our days on earth are a shadow. And will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? So let's look to the past, Job, and how people have understood how God works and understand that God works the same throughout the ages. And if you want to turn to Job 18.4, will be the next passage that we look at. This is the wisdom that he sees, and I think we'll see that in this in these passages. The wicked may initially prosper, but are not well grounded, and they are quickly removed and forgotten. And God will not change the way he works for Job. The wicked encounter trouble, which is evidence that they do not know God, and they will be forgotten. Look at Job 18, verses 4 and 5. And this is where he tells Job, basically, is God going to change the way he works for you? He says, you who tear yourself in your anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you or the rock be removed out of its place? Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out and the flame of his fire does not shine. Okay, you just soon ask gravity to change than to ask for God not to work this way. The light of the wicked is put out and the flame of his fire does not shine. Look at Job 18, verse 8. And Job's going to refer back to this passage in our passage that we look at today. It says, For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. And he goes into a lot of these hunting illustrations where a trap is hidden, and uh, he is caught in his own wickedness. Look at Job 18, verses 17 through 21. The wicked's memory perishes from the earth, and he has no name in the street. He is thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. Remember, I told you he's a jerk. Verse 19, he has no posterity or progeny among his people and no survivor where he used to live. What's happened to Job? He's been wiped. He's lost his children, right? He has no posterity left. Verse 20, they of the West are appalled at his day and horror seizes them of the East. Verse 21, surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. Now, what's he saying to Job? You don't know God. Look at his harshness. Uh, Looking back to Job chapter eight, verses three and four. And this is just so harsh, it's unbelievable to me. But he says in Job 8, verses 3 and 4, Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Wow. Remember, a wind came and blew over their dwelling place, driven by Satan, and killed all of his children. Back to Job 18, verses 12 and 13. It says, the wicked's strength is famished and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. What's happening with Job? Boils. His bones are staring at him, if you will. Look at Job 18, verse 19. Again, well, we read this before. He has no posterity or progeny among his people, no survivor. According to Bildad, God's not going to change the way he works for Job. The wicked encounter trouble, which is evidence that they do not know God and will be forgotten. Take that for what you will, Job. Circumstantial evidence is no reason to go after someone who is suffering instead of showing them mercy. And so I've entitled today's message, When Those Who Should Help Hurt. When Those Who Should Help 
hurt. This is Job's response to hurtful helpers. Let's look at his response to hurtful helpers in Job 19, verses 1 through 7. He insists that he is suffering unjustly. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? Now, there are times we find in the Bible when ten times is used. Jacob used that of Laban, his uncle, when he deceived him. Uh, it's kind of like when we say this to our children, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. Now, have you told them a thousand times? Maybe, but, you know, not necessarily an exact amount, right? Okay, so he's, he's just saying, look, you, you're, you're going overboard in this. Verse 4, and even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains within myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I'm not answered. I call for help, but there's no justice. His friends should be ashamed to wrong him in verses 1 through 3. In verses 4 and 5, Job is saying they have no evidence besides the fact that he is suffering. And then in verse 8, calling back to what Bildad said about the wicked being taken in their own wickedness in the net. Job says he did not bring this on himself. God did. He said, "I, I I didn't cause this calamity through my wickedness. I'm innocent. God brought this on. Now, who really brought it on? Satan, right? See, Job's understanding is limited here. But he's saying, I didn't do it. And nobody is listening to Job's cry for justice. And so he despairs. He despairs. And and we have a lot of against me language in this whole chapter. But it says in verse 8, he's saying that God is against him, treating him like an enemy ruler. Okay? says, he has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped me from, uh, he has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone, and my hope he has pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and they encamp around my tent. The imagery of a siege is going on. In ancient times, cities would be walled up so that, you know, that was their great defense. This is before we had missiles and tanks and those type of things. And so they built walls. And so when an enemy would come, one of the strategies would be to surround the city and cut them off from their supplies. So that they can't get food or water. But some cities had great uh, amounts of that. And so instead of waiting over time and having to supply your own troops, what they would do is they would be, build a siege ramp. They would build a ramp up to the walls of the city so that they could take their machines up there and batter down the wall and attack the city. And so we have this imagery here that God has sent his troops and he has surrounded it. And Job who once considered himself blessed, he was crowned, if you will, with blessings from the Lord. And now God is treating him like he is his enemy. And his hope has been uprooted like a tree. Not only that, but God uh, God has surrounded him and is terrifying him. 
but he has isolated Job. Look at verses 13 through 19. He's turned everyone against him. Even the people that Job loves have turned against him. He says, he has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I've become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife. And I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. Five times Job uses this term against me. In verse 5, he uses it twice. In In verse 11 and 12, it's used. And then also in verse 19. Everyone's against him. He feels isolated and without help, attacked from every side. He goes on to say in verse 20 that his health is gone. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. He's barely alive at this point. And here he cries out for mercy. Verses 21 and 22. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Job reiterates that it is God who has brought this upon him, not himself. It's not his wickedness that has brought this disaster to him. And then he says, why must you add to my suffering? In verse 21, he says, why do you, like God, pursue me? And if we consider pursuing there with verses 2 and 3, where he talks about how they torment him, they break him, they reproach him, and they wrong him. What friends? And then ultimately he cries out, why is it not enough for you that God's hand is upon me? You see my flesh. I've lost everything. Why is this not enough? Why must you come after me too? Job begs for mercy and finds none. But then we see great faith. Job's faith in verses 23 through 27. First, we see that Job wishes that his declaration of innocence could be recorded and not forgotten. He's responding back to uh, Bildad's statement that the wicked's memory perishes from the earth and he has no name in the street. He's like, boy, I wish my my words could be recorded. Look what he says. All that my words were written, all that they were inscribed in a book, all that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. He wishes that his declaration of innocence could be recorded and not forgotten. Why? Because he knows that at some point he will be justified. He knows that at some point he'll be justified. His faith is in God as his redeemer. Look at verse or chapter 19, verse 25. This great declaration often used uh, for uh, or often quoted verse, a favorite verse for many. He says, for I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. 
whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. The word there for redeemer is a Hebrew word, goel. It, it, it speaks of a kinsman redeemer. If you're unfamiliar with what a kinsman redeemer was, it's a, it's a situ, it was a, it was a law that was enforced, uh, that would, uh, if, if a man married, uh, a woman and they were unable to have children and then something happened to the man and he died, then one of the men's close relations, whether a brother or a cousin, depending on how far, you know, the family structure and everything, he could come in and then give that woman children so that one of them could inherit their property that was passed down from them and their name would not be lost. And we have an example of that in the book of Ruth, right? Naomi and her husband and her two sons go off into Moab, into a foreign country, and, and then there's a, there, there's a great, because there was a great famine in Israel, they went to Moab, and then both of her boys died. They married two girls, but both of them died, and they had no children. And she told her daughter-in-laws, go away. I've lost everything. I'm going back to my country. And one of them does leave, but Ruth says, I'm going to go with you, right? And your God will be my God, and your people will be my people, and and so Ruth comes with Naomi back to Israel, and Naomi says, don't call me Naomi anymore, call me Mara. Remember what Mara means? Bitter. The Lord has dealt with me bitterly, she says. She sounds a little like Job, right? She's lost everything. Now she's back home, and all she has is this Moabite girl with her. And there seems to be no hope, but then Ruth goes out to basically gather with the poor people from the field and runs into, just so happens to run into Boaz. And when she tells Naomi about it, she says, wait, he's he's a near kinsman. He might be the one. And sure enough, we won't go through the whole book here, but sure enough, Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. And so he marries Ruth and he raises up children to her and who was who was one of the great, great grandchildren of Ruth. David, King David, an amazing story of God's grace and working through difficult times. But Boaz was the kinsman redeemer that came in and continued Naomi's husband's lineage. But what happens if there's no kinsman to redeem a person? Well, Proverbs 23, verses 10 and 11 say this. (laughs) Do not remove an ancient landmark. Now, when you hear that, that means to steal land. In other words, here's a property boundary. Let me just pick up this stone and let's move it over a little bit. Do not steal land from or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. Who is the Redeemer of the fatherless? God Almighty Himself. God Almighty Himself. It is the God who sees all, who will act as the kinsman redeemer for the orphan. And God is the defender of the orphan. And Job trusts that God will be his redeemer as well. He says that there's very it's a very visual thing here. He says three times about the visual things. He says he'll see God. He'll see him for himself. And my eyes shall behold. 
And while God seems to be treating him as an enemy, Job trusts that at some point God will relent and be his defender. When he speaks about him standing on the earth, it means to stand up as a legal defender. And Job wishes his life's testimony could be permanently recorded and not forgotten because he knows for certain there's going to come a day when God, his Redeemer, will stand at his defense. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says this, Job saw himself as a murder victim. He depended on his Redeemer to testify for him, but also to set the books straight. God, who had become his enemy, would become his friend, and those who had joined in the kill would be punished. You see, it's wrong to accuse the righteous sufferer, because even when no one else steps up in their defense, one day God will be their defender. When it seems everyone has turned against you, despite your innocence, know that your Redeemer stands. For you. And Job warns his friends in verses 28 and 29. He says, if you say how we will pursue him and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know that there is a judgment. Job basically says, if you continue to wrong me, you risk judgment upon yourselves. I'm innocent. And it is wrong to accuse the righteous sufferer because even if no one steps up to their defense today, one day God will be their defender. Now, that's Job's response. What can we learn from it? Well, let's look at the fact that we need a redeemer. We need a redeemer. Job hoped in a redeemer to stand up for him in God's courtroom. Now, Job was innocent, unlike any man in his day. The Bible says, you and I, however, are sinful. We've all sinned. And we need a redeemer for our justification in God's courtroom. Thankfully, God sent Jesus to redeem us. We need a redeemer first for our justification. That means to be declared righteous. That's a that's a courtroom term. And in Titus 2.14, it says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus came to take our sins upon himself and to live a righteous life so that we can turn from our lawlessness and turn to the Savior whose blood pays the cost of our sin because the wages of sin is death. And his righteousness becomes ours because no one will see God without God's righteousness. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I urge you to repent of your sin and trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. He's your only hope. Without him, you are hopeless. You need a defender before God and Jesus is him. Your only hope. Be saved today. Be saved today. But not only do we need a Redeemer for our justification, we need a Redeemer for our sanctification. In other words, once we've been declared righteous, then we need to be those people of good works and we need to grow into the image of Christ. And that's the sanctification process that we see in the Scriptures. But yet, 
we need the gospel because we're still sinners and we need to be turning from our sin, an active thing, and trusting in the Savior, an active thing. Romans 8.1 says this. This is what I love, though. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The word condemnation, again, courtroom language. We shall never stand in the courtroom of God for those of us who have trusted Christ as our Savior and hear God say, guilty, you're damned. It won't happen. There's no condemnation. And then at the end of Romans 8, there's no separation. And I, and I love this part because Romans 8.33 says this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Because I don't know about you, but I, I still sin. I mean, if you came here this morning thinking your pastor's perfect, disappointment awaits. But who's going to charge me? Well, it's God who justified me. If you've got a problem with me being justified, you're going to have to take it up with God. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? who indeed is interceding for us. When it seems everyone is turned against you in life, and especially when we consider the book of Job, when you're innocent, know that your Redeemer stands for you. Why do we need defenders? Why do we need a defender? Well, because falsely accusing the righteous is satanic. Falsely accusing the righteous is satanic. There are times when people will look at our unjust suffering and they will accuse us of wrongdoing, just like Job's friends did to him. Here's the next observation. When you falsely accuse the righteous, you are behaving like Satan. Why do I say that? Well, despite what Job thinks about God being set against him, we know, as we've seen the behind the scenes part of the story, that God is not Job's enemy. God has not set up a a siege against Job. We know that it is Satan who has brought this false allegation against Job. We know that it is Satan who has brought on Job's suffering. And when Job says in verse 22, why do you, like God, pursue me? We know it's actually Satan who has pursued Job. And his friends are now pursuing him. So who are they acting like? Satan, because Satan is the great accuser of Christians. Revelation 12:10. John says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan is the great accuser, daily accusing us before God. But have no fear, Christian. In Colossians 2, 13 through 15, it's one of my favorite passages. Colossians 2, 13, it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. These rulers and authorities are the spiritual rulers and authorities. 
Imagine God's courtroom and you walk in and you're the defendant and your Redeemer stands as your lawyer. God sits as the judge. Satan comes in as the prosecution. And he talks about the handwriting of ordinances against us. The listing of the laws that we've broken. And I, I imagine Satan standing up and he's got this, like this big roll, like, almost like one of those rolls of toilet paper that you see in the public bathrooms, right? And it's, but it's pages written. And he just rolls that thing down the aisle. And he says, I've got a few things to say about David Harris. Let me tell you about him, God, and my Redeemer. He stands. He says, objection, your honor. And he walks over and he takes those ordinances written against me. And he takes them over and he nails them to the cross. He says, paid. They're paid for. What else do you have? And Satan stands flabbergasted. God drops the gavel. Case dismissed. You are righteous, my son. What a God. What a Redeemer. Oh, Christians, we have a great Redeemer. Trust in Him, even when it seems that no one else is for you, but everyone's against you. Trust in Christ. But, beloved, Also remember that when you falsely accuse someone of wrongdoing without any evidence, you are behaving like Satan. Circumstantial evidence is no reason to go after someone who is suffering instead of showing them mercy. Don't be a hurtful helper. It's wrong to accuse the righteous sufferer. Because even if no one steps up to their defense today, their Redeemer will one day. Next observation. Suffering unjustly is Christ-like. Suffering unjustly is Christ-like. Jesus died for humanity's sinful behavior. Did he deserve that? No. He deserved to be worshipped and honored. He took our sin upon himself, and he took our death for sin himself. And then he was raised to new life, ready to stand in defense of all those who are suffering unjustly. Jesus faced all kinds of false accusations. Christian, you will as well. People will question your motives. First Peter three thirteen through 17 says this. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake. You will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, falsely spoken of, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Beloved, we are to do good and to trust the results to God. Because God delights in exalting his servants who suffer unjustly for his name's sake. Also in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, it says, To keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers... They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The day of visitation when God visits them with salvation. 
You see, when you suffer for righteousness' sake, for the name of God, you are being like Christ. You are honoring the Father with your life despite suffering unjustly because of it. So when it seems everyone has turned against you despite your innocence, know that your Redeemer stands for you. And again, I urge any of you that are here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, make today the day. Don't wait. We deserve God's wrath, but He gives Mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. So turn from your sin and trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. But then for the Christians. I'm amazed and saddened at how some Christians interact with those who are suffering. Especially those who have suffered abuse at the hand of other so-called Christians. Instead of showing mercy and compassion to those who unjustly suffer wrong. They pile on more misery by investigating them and making false accusations. It's wrong to accuse the righteous sufferer because even if no one steps up to their defense today, one day God will be their defender. Don't be a hurtful helper. Don't assume that sin is the cause of a person's troubles. Before you accuse someone of sin, you need to have proof. That's why two or three witnesses is so important. When you accuse someone of wrongdoing without any evidence, you're behaving like Satan. I'm reminded of a a time I was uh, visiting back home, and uh, I was in a church there, and the Sunday school class was going on, and it was about Jonah. And uh, someone said, someone said, this is back when the Syrian refugees were, were, Coming, they, you know, there was just intense war, and people were urging America to open its borders and let the Syrians in. And uh, someone had noted, they said, you know, I feel like instead of God sending us to these other countries, to Nineveh, who were enemies of God, he said, God is sending our enemies to us. And, uh, and then someone else said, yeah, I said, they're, they're really trying to escape war and then there's this one guy he kind of he kind of snuffed he 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 really didn't like that whole thing of being compared to Jonah right and he kind of snorted and said well they deserve it a whole group of people condemned from christian lips accusing someone of wrongdoing without any evidence is behaving like satan now christians who are here this morning perhaps you are encountering False accusations. And you may ask yourself, what did I do to deserve that? Yet to the best of your knowledge, you're living for God's glory. Well, when it seems like everyone's turned against you, despite your innocence, know that your Redeemer stands for you. And it's my hope that we here at Faith Baptist Church will be helpful supporters of those suffering unjustly. And so if you're suffering unjustly, come to us. We may not be able to solve your problem, but we can certainly show compassion and mercy and pray with you and help if we can. We don't know what God is up to, but we know he's up to something good. And to suffer unjustly is to be Christ-like. Job's response to hurtful helpers was to cry out for mercy and trust his Redeemer to stand with him. When it seems that everyone has turned against you despite your innocence, know 
that your Redeemer stands for you.